Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 196. We'll continue in the Proverbs with a brief summary of chapters 20 through 23 and follow with some thoughts about trespassing. Among the many pithy maxims offered up by Mishle in this episode's portion, chapter 20's allotment has a lot of advice for homo economicus, or economic man, about whom many theorists, including John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith, and even Karl Marx, make a variety of assumptions. Money, please! Mishle has a different take. Rather than emphasize the supposed rational decision-making prowess of agents in the marketplace, Mishle hammers home a message about acting ethically and dealing with others with integrity and honesty. Quote, Two different weightstones, two different measures, Adonai's loathing are they both. Mishle even has words for the tenacious negotiators, quote, bad, bad, says the buyer, and he goes away and then preens himself. No, 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 come on, do it properly. What? Haggle properly. This isn't worth 19. You just said it was worth 20. Oh dear, oh dear. When it comes to human relations with God, Mishle is even more clear about where the appreciation should lie. Quote, an ear that hears and an eye that sees... Adonai made them both. Taken one step further, appreciation becomes adulation. Quote, from Adonai are the steps of a man, and how can a person grasp his own way? You can go your own way. Chapter 21 continues with this theme of humanity's position vis-a-vis God, pointing out the, quote, water streams a king's heart in the hand of Adonai, wherever he desires, he diverts it. The rest of the chapter takes up three topics, acquiring and losing possessions, the patient will acquire, the hasty will lose, the wicked might gain in the short term, but in the end, ill-gotten gains will destroy its owner. Mishle also tells of happiness, quote, a joy to the righteous, the doing of justice, but disaster to wrongdoers. And finally, how desire can be a person's undoing, especially the lazy, whose urges cannot even move them to act and satisfy them. Chapter 22 returns to Homo Economicus, specifically the more successful among them, quote, a name is choicer than great wealth, than silver and gold good favor. But even more important than that, quote, the rich and the poor come together, Adonai is maker of both. The middle section of this chapter illuminates the fate of certain types, real types, perhaps stereotypes or ideal types, the generous, the scoffer, the sluggard, stranger women, the foolish lad, and the oppressor of the poor. Each in turn may seem to thrive, but each will get what's coming to them in the end. The remainder of the chapter is dedicated to the words to the wise, and it will continue through chapters 24, verse 22. Here's a little tip. The words the wise are practical, and Mishle tells us, guarantee a positive outcome. Quote, have I not written for you 30 things in good counsel and knowledge to inform you the utmost true sayings to respond to those who send you? For example, Mishle advises not to rob the wretched or crush the poor in the gate. They counsel to avoid the irascible man, the hothead, the lone shark, and the claim jumper who shifts, quote, age-old boundary stone that your forefathers set up. I mean, it's not earth-shattering stuff. Avoid people who suck. They will drag you down. No good, you're no good, you're no good. Baby, you're no good. 
chapter 23 continues in this vein. Remember the list of 30 items? Well, there were six in chapter 22. The wretch robber, the poor crusher, the irascible, the hothead, the lone shark, and the claim jumper. And this chapter will have 11 more solid pieces of good counsel, and they have numerous parallels to Egyptian wisdom literature. Number seven, when eating with the powerful, don't eat too much. Quote, do not crave his delicacies when they are bread of lies. Number eight, don't try too hard to get rich because wealth comes and goes. Quote, let your eyes but fly over it. It is gone, for it will surely sprout wings like an eagle fly off to the heavens. Number nine, when eating with a cheapskate, know that they didn't invite you over to feed you, but quote, his heart is not with you. Your crust that you eat, you will vomit and you will ruin your pleasant words. Number 10, don't try talking to a foolish person. He won't appreciate anything wise you have to say. Number 11, don't shift the age-old boundary stone, okay? Number 12, smack the crap out of your kids and, quote, save his life from Sheol. Mm. Number 13, be smart and don't envy the sinner. Number 14, don't drink at parties because, quote, the guzzler and gorger will lose all and slumber will clothe him in rags. Number 15, bring honor and joy to your parents by being wise and good. You're such a good boy. I love you. Number 16, avoid horrors because, quote, a horror is a deep ditch and a narrow well, the stranger woman. Number 17, do you know who gets the oi and the ve, the strife and the complaint, the needless wounds and bloodshot eyes? You guessed it, the one who drinks too much and too often. Quote, in the end, it bites like a snake and like a viper spews its poison. first we hear about this grave offense of moving boundary stones is in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Quote, you are not to move back the border of your neighbor that the first ones set as border in your inheritance that you inherit in the land that Adonai your God is giving you to possess. Again, in chapter 27, Deuteronomy states, quote, damned be he that moves back the territory marker of his neighbor and all the people are to say, Amen. So what's the deal with this? So, some context. You have to go back to the time when the Jews are about to enter the long-promised land of Canaan after generations of wandering in the desert. Sight unseen, the land is due to be portioned out by tribal allotment, and basically each household would receive a plot in the new land, and these plots would be demarcated by stones which serve as territory markers. Family A. You get three dunams over here. Your neighbor's family B also gets three dunams. But for the system to work, there has to be a collective conceit that the portioning out actually maps onto reality. It's kind of like money. We all have to agree that these colored pieces of paper or synthetic polymer have value. So as Joshua 18 recounts, once the Jews finished dispossessing the Canaanites of the land God promised them, the Jews who crossed the Jordan River, apparently every single one of them, congregates at Shiloh to settle the matter of, quote, there remain seven tribes of the Israelites who had not yet received their portions. But first, Yehoshua asked the people, quote, how long will you be slack about going and taking possession of the land, which Adonai, God of your fathers, has assigned to you? He then sends off three men from each of the remaining seven landless tribes to scout out the land and divide it into seven portions, and then lots are cast to determine which tribe gets which portion. 
Although the text doesn't say this explicitly, it's safe to assume that they not only set up a network of territory markers to bring the outcome of allotment ritual to life, but they probably did so in between clan allotments within the tribe down to the individual landowner. And even if they didn't, in this context, from earlier examples in the Tanakh, this was a long-standing system of marking territory that the biblical authors maybe wrote into their history as happening at the time of the first ones. And as fixed and permanent as a rock marker can or can't be, there's one other caveat to this elaborate performance and subsequent landmarking and map making and land possessing. This land claim is conditional. That is, God gives the land to the Jews on the condition that they stay on the righteous path. Deuteronomy 27 reminds us that the marker mover is but the subsequent chapter goes into gruesome and evocative detail about what will happen if everyone strays from the path quote and it shall be as adonai once delighted in you by doing good for you and by making you many thus will adonai delight in causing you to perish and by destroying you and you shall be pulled up from the soil that you are entering to possess. Adonai will scatter you among the peoples from the edge of the earth to the other edge of the earth. You will serve their other gods whom you have not known. Either you or your fathers of wood and of stone. Yet among those nations you shall not find repose, nor shall there be rest for the sole of your foot. Adonai will give you there a shuddering heart, failing eyes, and languishing breath. Your life will hang by a thread before you. You will be terrified night and day, and you will not trust in the security of your life. At daybreak, you will say, who would make it sunset? And at sunset, you will say, who would make it daybreak? Out of the terror of your heart that you feel in terror, out of the sight of your eyes that you see. So how firm is the foundation of this deal or land ownership altogether? In the words never uttered by Squamish and Duwamish chief Sihal, although attributed to him by environmentalists across North America, quote, Moving a stone marker is simply a matter of theft, plain and simple, isn't it? You're taking land that doesn't belong to you. Why is the Deuteronomist and Mishle getting so worked up about this? Surely the prohibition against theft covers this. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Because the moving of a stone in some far-off field, thus adding 10 meters to my portion and subtracting 10 meters from yours, problematizes the very nature of the project of land allotment and immovable property ownership itself. And from there it goes to owning the resources extracted from the land. If all it takes is moving a stone or relocating a stake, then how real is anyone's claim to the land? It's as real as a piece of colored paper having value. So even if we regular folk get you know more funny ideas or start asking probing questions, The state has an answer for us, and that answer is often backed by the full force of the state in whichever form it takes. Monarchy, oligarchy, flimsy democracy, property rights exist. 
and uh, they generally belong to the king, the royal in the term real, royal, real estate. And if you think you can play fast and loose with them, you will find yourself on the pointy end of a halberd. That's why we have police to make sure that property rights are protected. In Canada, we have the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. You are looking at the pride of that noble force, our hero, Dudley Do-Right. <laughs> and this is Dudley Do-Right's horse. <laughs> the Mounties were created for a specific purpose, to assert sovereignty over Indigenous people, and more importantly, their lands. Canada's first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, copy and pasted the Mounties' concept from the Royal Irish Constabulary, a paramilitary force the British created to keep the Irish under control. Canada had only recently purchased Western Canada from the Hudson's Bay Company and needed someone to manage the indigenous and Métis people of the prairies and facilitate the transfer of their land to the federal government with, in theory, minimal bloodshed. The Mounties helped force First Nations onto reserves that made sure they didn't leave unless they got permission. This past system which ran from 1885 to the 1940s in Canada, gave power to an Indian agent to decide whether a First Nations person could leave the reserve. It was made into law by John A. Macdonald and enforced by police. This past system was also adopted by apartheid South Africa, and a variation of it is still in place in the occupied West Bank. In other words, the police are not here to necessarily serve and protect people from bad guys, but to serve the state and protect property. And in some cases, the state empowers certain individuals to use force, force that only the police are generally allowed to use to protect their own property. Trespassing is a crime. And according to Section 35 of the Canadian Criminal Code, I would not be found guilty of an offense if I believe on reasonable grounds that I am in peaceable possession of property or am acting under the authority of, or lawfully assisting, a person whom I believe on reasonable grounds is in peaceable possession of property. And I also believe on reasonable grounds that another person is about to enter, is entering, or has entered the property without being entitled by law to do so is about to take the property, is doing so, or has just done so, or is about to damage or destroy the property or make it inoperative, or is doing so. And what I do, the act that constitutes the offense, is committed for the purpose of preventing the other person from entering the property, or removing that person from the property, or preventing the other person from taking, damaging, or destroying the property, or from making it inoperative, or retaking the property from that person, and the act committed is reasonable. In that circumstance, or those circumstances, I guess. I got it! It's coming right for us! You see, boys, the Democrats have passed a lot of laws trying to stop us from hunting. Democrats piss me off! They say we can't shoot certain animals anymore unless they're posing an immediate threat. Therefore, before we shoot something, we have to say, it's coming right for us! So I guess it comes down to what's reasonable in the circumstance. Well, force. This section and the section preceding it in the criminal code were updated in 2012 with the passage of Bill C-26, and now lethal force may be used in the defense of my life or peaceably possessed property or the defense of another's life or peaceably possessed property, and quote, is not considered an offense so long as the person believes that force is being used against them in the case of self-defense, that someone is about to or has broken into damaged property 
or in the case of defensive property, that they are acting in defense of themselves, someone else, or peaceably possessed property, and that the act and degree of force is reasonable in the circumstances. These provisions might sound familiar to most Americans, as they're commonly referred to as stand-your-ground laws or the castle doctrine. Under normal circumstances and depending on the location, when a person feels threatened, they may have a duty to retreat to avoid violence if they can reasonably do so. Along comes the castle doctrine to say, When I say whoa, I mean no! You don't have a duty to retreat in your own home. Your house, your property, your land is your castle, and you can defend it with reasonable force. And what's reasonable force really depends on the norms of your community. Yosemite Sam! It's Yosemite Sam! Yosemite Sam! Yosemite. Yeah, Yosemite Sam! The roughest, toughest he-man, stuffest hombre has ever crossed the Rio Grande! Which these days is kind of all over the place. Look, this isn't the only instance where the state overreaches and overreacts in response to conceptual assaults on its integrity. For example, peaceful protesters are often assaulted, kettled, and arrested by police. But this might be one of those instances where the state, you know, outsources its dirty work to regular old citizens under the guise of protecting yourself. There are better ways to mess with the integrity of social institutions and concepts like private property. Moving the boundary stones kind of misses the point. From an outsider's perspective, it kind of looks like straight-up theft which some folks are good with. Me, I, I'm not so sanguine about that. By adding to one plot and taking from another, you're normalizing both land claims and you're inviting them to be policed even harder. If you really wanted to mess with land grabbers who make claims on stolen land in the name of the state, don't move the boundary stones hither and yon. Just steal them. There was a big high wall there tried to stop me sign was painted said private property but on the back side it didn't say nothing this land was made for you and me if you like what you heard today spread the word about Tanakhcast tell a friend about Tanakhcast over coffee Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Tanakhcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast at patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 197, when we continue in the Proverbs with chapters 24 through 27.